and a big welcome to the Elevator podcast. My name is Micah and I'm Selena and together we interview high achieving personalities to get to know their journey and expertise and the barriers they have faced so far to empower and inspire you to reach your full potential and elevate your life. Hey everyone, today we are excited to be joined by Dr. Joanna Jackson an Advanced Research Fellow at the Faculty of Medicine in the Department of Brain Sciences at Imperial College. After starting her career in industry for eight years, Jo decided to follow her passion in science, which led her back to academia. Here at Imperial, Jo is leading the Multiomics Atlas Project at the Dementia Research Institute, which aims to characterize the pathology of human Alzheimer's disease. She is also the Athenas One lead for the Department of Brain Sciences which commits to advance the careers of women in all kinds of fields, including science. So without further ado, let's dive right into this episode. So welcome, Joe, to our podcast today. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. <laughs> Before we yeah, start diving in, would you mind giving a bit of background introduction to yourself? Sure, absolutely. So uh, first of all, thank you for the invite to speak to you today. It's very exciting. So I'm Jo Jackson and uh, I'm an advanced research fellow at Imperial College. I joined uh, Imperial about two years ago. I joined after spending eight years in the pharmaceutical industry. And prior to that, I did a couple of postdocs, a PhD and then undergraduate master's so I, I've had a bit of a, an interesting journey on the way here. I haven't done the typical linear academic path because I spent that time uh, in industry. Awesome. Yeah, it's great to have like, you know, diverse profiles of individuals as well on the podcast. So it's great to have like a diversity. So what made you switch from industry to academia then? Yeah, so I was, so basically I joined industry as a postdoc and I joined because I was basically in the right time at the right place. I was following the science and they were doing a technique to photon imaging. Uh, they wanted to get that set up in Alzheimer's disease. So it fitted in with uh, my research at the time. I then was progressed in industry from postdoc to group leader and then senior research scientist. And over the eight years, I loved it. I learned a lot and I focused on uh, synapses in Alzheimer's disease, the connections between neurons, nerve cells. But then what often happens in industry, and it's very common, is research focus changes. And that's the way it is. And it changes because the uh, priorities at that time change, the science is changing. So they decided to move away slightly from the, the synapse work in Alzheimer's disease. And I did that for a while. And then I realized that I wasn't doing the science that I wanted to do. And so I made the slightly controversial uh, decision, I guess, to go back to academia, which doesn't happen that often. There's not a huge amount of people that go that way, uh, go back. And I did it really to, to do the science that I enjoy. And I thought, and I wanted to give that a go really back in academia. Amazing. Thank okay. you for sharing that. Um, I absolutely love the story behind it, that you chose to change because you wanted to do something you love 
-hmm. that is incredible. And it's also really brave to do like such a, a loop from industry to academia. So what would you say are the main differences between industry and academia? So I think, I mean, obviously it depends what part of industry you're in. So I was doing discovery research. So it's probably the most academic side of the drug discovery process. So I was trying to understand why and how synapses are lost in Alzheimer's disease. So we collaborated a lot with academia when we were there. So there are other aspects of drug discovery which are quite different to the academic model. But I was sitting somewhere between the two. So there was that. In terms of the differences, I actually, I think it's, it's quite important to break down some of the myths about working in industry. So things like you're not allowed to publish any data. I published when I was in industry. It depends which projects you're working on. It depends if you are uh, you know, really looking at a particular mechanism of a drug. But if you are trying to understand the disease, then you can publish and you're encouraged to publish your data. So you can do that. You can go to conferences and present your data, you know, again, it depends exactly what you're working on, but that is very much encouraged uh, as well. Uh, there are some slight differences that the health and safety, I think, is a lot stricter in industry. So, yeah, that, that takes a bit of getting used to. And, and then I guess there's always the possibility that the research focus will change. And that is what happened. And I, I knew that throughout the eight years, that at, at some point, this they may change focus. That is, I guess, probably less common in academia because you write grants to do that particular piece of research. So you're going to do that research, and at least until the end of the grant, and hopefully then might uh, write more grants. So that is probably the slight difference that you, you might need to change uh, your research focus uh, quite quickly. And some people in industry are really happy with that. And that that's fine. They, they're very skilled scientists and they can switch research focus. That, personally, that wasn't for me, though. It's great to hear also, as Michael said, that you went for what you liked in the end, that you're doing science because you actually want to do something that you love. And yeah, just following a subject that you love, I think that's really inspiring. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. One question, maybe for the listeners, if you can explain a little bit more about Alzheimer's disease, like what it is, you know, what the pathobiology of the disease is. Yeah, absolutely. So Alzheimer's disease is a, what we call a neurodegenerative disease. So it means that uh, essentially the cells in your brain at some point degenerate, they, they die, unfortunately. And it's, it's a problem, especially with an aging population. So the main risk factor um, and what increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease is age. So it increases as we get older. And at least bef before COVID, it was, uh, it was estimated that about one in four beds of the NHS is taken up uh, by someone with dementia, which is a, uh, Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. So dementia is an umbrella term. And so one in four beds, you can imagine, you know, the, the burden on the NHS and the, and the cost and everything that comes with that. And so it really is a problem, especially with a, an aging population. 
And essentially, Alzheimer's disease forms when you have the pathological accumulation of misfolded proteins. And there's two key misfolded proteins. One is beta amyloid and one is a hyperphosphorylated tau. And they uh, basically are misfolded, so they change their structure. And that then starts to cause, first of all, affect the function of the brain cells, but then lead to the degeneration of the brain cells. And the particular part that I'm interested in is the synapses. So this is where brain cells basically join onto each other. And so they're able to communicate and then your cells communicate across a network. And when these synapses then are lost in the disease, that then leads to the cognitive impairment that we all associate with Alzheimer's disease. So the changes in memory function and other, uh, other processes. And so there's a few ways you can tackle Alzheimer's disease. You can either target those misfolded proteins. And there's a lot of work. I'd say the majority of the work uh, is, is really in that area. There's a lot of other processes that go on during the disease. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in, can we target those synapses? And can we either prevent them being lost or in an ideal world, can we restore them? Because unfortunately, by the time someone goes to their doctor, they already have the pathology and they are starting to uh, lose their synapses. So what would be ideal is if we are able to regenerate, to regrow those synapses. But first of all, if we can just stop further loss of synapses, that would have a, a, a real benefit to patients. Really interesting. Thank you for, uh, for these explanations. So, so you're leading the multi-omics um, atlas project at yes. the uh, Dementia Research Institute based at Imperial. So what does this project involve? Yes, yeah, so I'm, um, although I'm based at Imperial, I'm part of the UK Dementia Research Institute. And so this is essentially a, an institute without walls. And there's seven centres split across six universities in the UK. And so basically everyone's coming together to, uh, to investigate and further understand dementia. And part of that, uh, they have these directors initiatives. So the director of the Imperial Centre, basically with, with a few other people, came up with an idea of developing a multiomics atlas of human Alzheimer's disease. And this is where using multiomics techniques, and I'll explain what they are in a second, we basically get a greater understanding of the pathological process that happens in Alzheimer's disease. Now, by multiomics, uh, I mean looking at the genetics, looking at transcriptomics, which is how the genes, uh, the gene expression, looking at proteomics, so then the proteins uh, within uh, the cells, synaptic proteomics, my uh, area, lipidomics, so how the lipids change, and others, and the project is growing as we speak. And the reason we want to look at all these areas is because then we can start to tease out what causes the disease and what are the consequences of the disease. So by looking at the genetics, can we discover and understand more the genes which cause the disease? 
And then what are the, the consequences then? So how are then the proteins are affected? Importantly for me, how are the proteins at the synapses affected? And so then you can start to work out exactly where it's go essentially going wrong. And then we can start to understand and target the, the things that we have understood, have a, now have a greater understanding of, and can we target those and can they be used as drug targets to then try and uh, modify the disease progression? That, that's so interesting. And I think in many diseases now, we we're taking uh, this multi-omics approach, as you said, because we know that it's not only about genetics, it's on, not only just about proteomics, it's about like looking at the body and the human being as a whole. Mm -hmm. So that's really fascinating. And so I had like two questions that I'm going to combine. So the first one is, um, is there a genetic component to Alzheimer's disease? And then can we detect Alzheimer's disease early before? Because you were saying that when patients come up, they already have this loss of synapses. So can we detect this earlier? Yeah. So very, two very good questions. So there is a, yes, there is a genetic component uh, to Alzheimer's disease. So there are several genes that we know increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, there's one um, ApoE4. TREM2, uh, which is uh, actually found in microglia, which are the uh, immune cells of the brain, and there are a few others as well. And we know that they increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. There's also a, a polygenic risk factor here. So actually, certain genes on their own may have a small effect, but people may have a few of those genes. And then essentially together, they then increase the risk of Alzheimer's. So absolutely, there is a genetic component. In terms of your second question, whether we can detect Alzheimer's disease early enough, and that is a real challenge in the field. And getting biomarkers uh, so that we can pick up the changes and pick them up early enough is very, very difficult. And it also there's also an ethical component as well to this. Because should we be screening everyone, let's say, over the age of 50, you know, that there's a there's a science issue there. Have we got the biomarkers to do that? There's also um, an ethical question. Do we and do we want to do that? Do we have the resources to do that? It, it happens in other diseases. You know, there's many cancers where obviously there's screening. So maybe that is where we want to go. But we, we really need to make sure we have the biomarkers uh, ready for when we, we go down that route. When I lecture about this, you, know, you start off, okay, amyloid and tau, but then I have one slide of all the other processes. Yeah. Saying, you know, it's so complicated and that's why it's really, really difficult uh, to develop a, a treatment for it. I understand. But yeah, the brain is such an interesting part of the body and it's, it's so little still known about it. So then now you're back at Imperial. So how is it yeah, leading your own research group? Can you maybe tell us about that a bit? Yeah, so I'm in a bit of an interesting position, basically. So when you when you go from industry to academia, it's, as I said, it's an unusual move. And so therefore, it confuses people a bit in terms of where to put you. So I had I had my own research group in industry. Um, I I've had PhD students, that kind of thing. 
but I haven't had to write grants. And I've published, but probably not as much as if I'd stayed in academia, because there were a couple of um, aspects of my work I couldn't publish. So, so therefore you come back in and it, it's, it's a bit strange where, where you slot in. So, so, which is one of the reasons why I'm leading the Multiomics Atlas project. And it's basically a way of using my skills that I uh, learnt in industry to lead a big project. But then as alongside that, I'm setting up my own research group as well. So uh, it means that things are very busy. Um, it keeps me, <laughs> keeps me busy. And it's also interesting as well, trying to get research up and running, have students, get a lab going, as well as leading this other big project as well, and to start writing grants. And I hadn't written a grant until two years ago. And so, and you know, that's the whole skill set in itself. And so I've, I think the biggest thing about leading a research group is finding time to still do the science. Your time gets kind of taken up by the management and the, the admin and all those things and and my boss who is the head of department keeps saying to me find time to think and I say I don't have time to think <laughs> um, but he he's like just you've got to find some time just to think about what you're doing because if not it's so busy you're just firefighting but you don't think about the science and um, so that's his piece of advice so now I actually I try and block book two hours in my calendar on a Friday afternoon which I don't know if that's the best time but a Friday afternoon to to try and and just think about the science that I'm doing the science I want to do um, and how I'm going to make that happen yeah. I love this approach though. It's really nice and it's such a, a good advice your boss gave you, I think. Like, yeah, because if you don't probably then block it, you will yeah. always do something else. I like that. <laughs> yeah, and I like the fact that you say that actually you, you struggle to find the time to do the science. And I think it's something that puts off, that may put off quite a lot of people to just pursue they research in academia because they're like okay but I'm not going to just stay like a PhD student or like maybe like a research assistant for the for my entire career right I want to sort of go up a little bit the ladder but then as you did your research group as you said I mean I see it even with PIs like they're just never in the lab I mean it's really rare to see a PI who's like 24-7 in the lab this just doesn't exist <laughs> yeah it's a challenge it it really is although I had to say today I went on a, a microscope to check something for my student and it's you know, to still get that buzz is really nice. And so, you know, that's I think what keeps all PIs going, that the the small amount of time they do get to do a bit of science or to look at a microscope image or think about it is so exciting that 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 drives them through and that you know gets them writing more grants. But so just coming back to the multi-omics project uh, you're leading. So from what I understand, it's a, it's a project which is very a collaborative project between different groups, right? So I think this is just a really nice example of how or like how I would wish for the science to go further. So is this something you experienced through with this multi-omics project as well? 
Yeah, so you're right. The multi-omics project is very collaborative. And that's uh, partly because we're part of the Dementia Research Institute with these different uh, uh, different centres. But also, you're absolutely right in that that is how science, especially nowadays, how science moves forward. And I think and we also collaborate with industry as well. And the lines there are also blurring a bit as well, because industry and academia also realise they need each other to push science forward. And working in a, a silo, you know, just one researcher on their their research question and not speaking to anyone is thankfully not how, really not how science is done nowadays. And I think collaboration is, is really important. It, it's better for everyone. I mean, it's a lot more enjoyable when, when you collaborate. The science is a lot more fun. So at, at the DRI and I, I think Imperial as well, everyone is very keen to collaborate. No, that's great to hear. I think it's, it's such an important point that you mentioned there, you know, just being open-minded to talk to other people, to communicate your science. Yeah. And I, I think actually we're going one step further now, which is really great of like open data. So you generate a data set with, you know, you and your collaborators. And not, not only do you keep it between you and your collaborators, you go one step further. It's just publicly available. And so anyone then can download your data or often it's on a data portal so you can interrogate it online. And so instead of someone in, I don't know, another university, you know, trying to reproduce your experiment, they can just look at your data. They can look at the code. They can look at how it's generated. And the Multiomics Atlas project is very much this open science platform because we want to drive Alzheimer's research forward and ultimately find targets to benefit patients. So I think it's very exciting times in that respect. Definitely. I, I very much agree. I really hope in the future we can see more of this. Good. Yeah, definitely. So I had just one question, just coming back to Alzheimer's disease. We know that dementia, I think especially Alzheimer's disease, is more prevalent, more prevalent sorry, in women than men. And I think this was a really nice like podcast about actually like the menopause and Alzheimer's disease and how estrogen may be protective against dementia. Do you know a little bit about that? Probably the short answer is no. Okay. <laughs> I have heard this, it's not um, my field at all, um, that side of Alzheimer's disease. I think it's it, it highlights how a, in science, in neuroscience, we really have to look at, at, at everyone, right? And for a long, long time, a lot of research was done in in men, in white men. And it's really important that we look at the, you know, diverse populations to really understand this. And this even goes far back to in animal experiments where often you use male mice, are beginning to understand things well in male mice, but then someone suggests, well, should we do it in female mice? And often the answer sometimes is, well, Ooh, the estrus cycle messes things up and it adds the variability to our data. So uh, in an ideal world, we would, but it makes the experiment difficult. And it does. I mean, that doesn't really push science forward, right? So I think it's a very, yeah, it's a very interesting area. And 
um, it, it definitely highlights that we need to be looking at these at diverse groups of, uh, of patients and, and, and also into our research models as well. I, I totally agree. So you were saying you were mentioning, should we look at also, for example, female mice? So was this something you were wanting to look like to include like the female parts as well, but it was really hard to integrate? Yeah, the, the, the Alzheimer's models that I've worked on, the generally the, the female mice, they have a different disease progression, but of course not everyone, but a lot of people focus on male mice. And because of the variability, you, you want your data with minimal variability as much as possible. And yeah, and so often it's easier to look at male mice. I think this is changing. I'm talking years ago now, and I, I do see this changing. But I know some of the, uh, the mouse models of Alzheimer's that I've worked on, as I said, the disease progression is different. And it's important that we understand why that is. Yeah, we had um, Dr. Alison McGregor yeah. on the podcast. This was our first episode, and yeah, she just mentioned, you know, how important it is to just take take into account, you know, gender in medicine, whatever that is, you know, in humans, experimental models. I think that's even in cell culture, to be honest. The donors of the cells, we know that they're either male or female, but we don't even take that into account. But I feel yeah. like since we had that interview, we've been like more aware of this. And I think that's like the main main part is just to talk about it so people start getting the awareness. What are your top tips for managing your time? Because like we know you're a mom as well. So do you have any tips? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, being a working mom and a working parent, I mean, it, it has its challenges and uh, trying to balance everything, especially obviously in the past year, it's had even more challenges thrown at us. In terms of top tips, I think learning to say no is really important and it's something that is really hard to do. And I think especially for women to generalise, I guess, a bit, but it, it it is hard and I found it really, really difficult. And then I, I you know, I don't want to let someone down. Equally, I, I've noticed that other there are other people who say no and it, it's all fine. If you say no, you can't do it. That's okay. You know, if you can't say no, at least negotiate the timeline or something, whatever that someone's asking you to do. So I'm trying <laughs> to get better at doing that because I just could not take on anything else. So, you know, I, as I've already said, I lead the Multiomics Atlas project. I'm setting up my own group. Um, I'm also the uh, diversity and inclusion lead for the Department of Brain Sciences. So I have another role there in the department as well. As yeah, as well as being a mom who has to make sure homework gets done and the school run and um, all those kind of things. And I, I can't work at weekends. I, I can do bits. But, you know, I know there's some academics who you know, just work all weekend, but I, I can't. It's not fair to my son if I do that uh, or my husband. <laughs> he might have something to say about it as well. So in a way, I think because I want to um, spend time with my family, that means I have to switch off from work. And I think that's probably a good thing, to be honest, for, for mental health as well. The, to have some downtime, to go on a bike ride, 
although maybe it adds a bit more stress when it gets to a Monday morning and, you know, work starts again. Uh, it, it is the way it is. And I, I can only really do what I can do and do my best. Yeah, it's, it's really nice to hear that, that you say that, you know, I want to take time. So I'm taking the time off. So, yeah, I think that's just really valuable and really normal as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say the parents that I know in work, they're very focused because they they go in, they've got a list of things to do. They have to be out mm. the door to to do school pickup. There's not you can't just oh, oh, just stay late or I'll just do it on a Saturday. No, I, I need to be out the door at five o'clock. I, I agree. I mean, if this time where you have to leave it sets some sort of like stop to it. Because you say like some people might work on a weekend, but it's not fair to anyone. Yeah, also not to yourself, uh, because I can't imagine you probably don't have much alone time in all the scheduling. <laughs> no, <laughs> Which is also probably not very easy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. But uh, I try. I try and have a, a cup of tea, you know, a quiet cup of tea occasionally. <laughs> That, that is very nice <laughs> yeah so it's yeah heads up for for that yeah and also with COVID times that um, like of course then homeschooling probably and yeah that probably added in another extra layer of work on top of it yeah and I think homeschooling I mean obviously it was such a you know strange time and, and the whole world and you know I do believe obviously everyone was affected in their own ways so I'm not saying that I had it harder than someone else, uh, but homeschooling was a challenge. I was also very lucky because I'm, I'm not a single parent. So there was two of us, two of us at home, so we could share the work, but it was a challenge. And the studies that have, have now come out that have shown that parents and women, uh, women parents have uh, published less during this time. And they, but they've still maintained the amount of administrative tasks that they have done. So they they've done the same amount of admin, but their their science has suffered during this time. And so you know what effect that knock on effect that then has in years to come on their careers. Well, we will see. But obviously, it it's it's going to make life difficult. I'm pushing for the fact that it is taken into account when someone goes for a promotion. If they were a working parent and homeschooling during COVID, that has to be taken into account, surely. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's such a big issue, but it's just like a wider issue than COVID, right? Like COVID just highlighted so, so, so yeah. many, both like, you know, societal, social, like health issues that we have in this country and just in the world in general. And we had like Alisa Gilmore on a podcast last season and she, she was saying about, you know, women publishing less during maternity leaves as well. But then on the like overall, women were publishing the same rate as men, like yeah. during their career. So I really hope that, you know, women less like publishing less during like throughout the last year that will be like compensated by further publications in the future. But as you say, that should still be take, taken into account. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, there's a lot of other factors as well and uh, in society in general and that COVID has exposed. And I hope that we learn from all of this. So maybe do you want to just tell us if you had experienced any barriers being a woman in the industry 
because you spent so like such a long time in the industry. Yeah, also academia, of course. Oh, academia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say I think industry is a little bit ahead of the game with in terms of diversity and inclusion, but things like being uh, spoken over in meetings or being in a meeting and if you're the only woman, you get asked to take notes or to do the, the admin task that comes out of that meeting, those kind of things. And I, I think probably every woman I know has experienced uh, things like that. And I think, you know, it also plays into imposter syndrome and and that. And maybe it's because uh, because people speak over you or because you're asked to do the slightly more menial tasks uh, that then you question your own uh, ability. So there's there, I mean, there's definitely challenges out there. I think in the end, it sort of all comes down to education, right? If, if women are more educated about how they are treated because I think loads of things we think it's normal but then, then yeah I think it's just women need to be more aware and more empowered absolutely but and also I think more and more men are aware of this now and yeah. you know being an ally is is very important and and whether that's when we talk about gender whether we talk about ethnicity uh, or other underrepresented groups as well I think it's very important to to be an ally, so where you realise that I haven't had to face those challenges, but that doesn't mean that I, you know, keep quiet, and that doesn't mean I have zero opinion on it. I, you know, I, I'm very aware that there's a lot of challenges I haven't had to face in life. Uh, that doesn't mean I can't fight for the people that have had to um, uh, overcome those challenges. So I very much, and one thing we say to our son is, you know, just because you are not experiencing that doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye you can stand up for people in the interest of time i think we're gonna ask you a final question <laughs> which is what is your favorite word or quote and why so i think the one i've gone for is it's out of midsummer night's dream and it's though she be but little she is fierce and I think it's just it sums up about don't don't underestimate people, basically. You know, that has happened in the past, especially in science, whether it be women or other underrepresented groups. But don't underestimate people because uh, diversity is good for science. So I think that basically sums that up, I hope. Amazing. Yeah, that was a perfect quote. Good. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Joe as much as we did and learned a bit more about changing career path, Alzheimer's disease, and the importance of having an open conversation in all aspects of your life. You will find links to Joe's website and other useful resources mentioned here in the show notes. And as always, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to this podcast, as well as share it around you so that we can reach and empower more people to elevate their lives. See you next week for another exciting episode.